Uh, well, uh, I'm glad to see you all this evening. Um, what can we be praying about? Uh, let me, while you are thinking about that, I've been talking with Dolores all day. I don't know if you know Rocky's been back in the hospital. Uh, she said Rocky's off the vent for six and a half hours today. No change in the CO2 level, which is good. Planning on being off longer tomorrow, and they're hoping to go home Friday at this point. So they went in for something routine, and he started having seizures again. So at this point, it looks like they'll go home Friday. But what else can we be praying for? Praise for the rain. Yes, ma'am. Thomas Long. Thomas Long. Emma Blaylock. Todd Urban. Is that I-R-V-I-N? Irvin or Urban? Urban. Richard Carver. You're my favorite, Miss Garnell. <laughs> Baird Crumpton, yes, ma'am. He's home, good. Pauline Gentry. Bill and Pat Guard, yes. Christy Brown. I have some comments somewhere. He's still having some problems with his eyes. With his eyes? Desiree. And Scotty. That's right. 
What's the last name? Pam Zimmerman. Good. Yeah. Say again. Many seamster. Much as always to be prayerful about. Anyone else? All right. Let's let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful that we can come to you in prayer. We can approach your throne with grace. We can find help in times of need. Lord, we're grateful that we can unburden ourselves of our anxieties onto you because you care. Lord, we're grateful that you are our sovereign Lord. We're grateful that none of the things going on in our lives or the lives of those we've mentioned is outside of your control, outside of your awareness. None of it is outside of your concern. Lord, we're grateful for the reminder of prayer that in praying we are reminded that these things are out of our control, they're out of our ability to handle. It's a reminder that you are our Father, that you have all power and authority. It's a reminder, Lord, that sometimes what we think is best is not always best. It's a reminder that we can trust you to do what is right because you never do anything wrong. Lord, we do pray for the names that we have been mentioned. Lord, I trust that everyone who said a particular name is praying for that person in particular now. Lord, we do pray for Desiree and for Scotty as they continue to walk this path. Lord, we plead, uh, we plead specifically for healing. That you would heal her. We know you can. Lord, we trust in your righteousness and that you do no wrong and that you will only do what is right in Desiree and Scotty's life. Lord, we pray for Todd as he lays in his hospice bed. None of us perhaps knows what that's like. Maybe some of us do. I do not know what it's like to lay in the hospice bed with my death being near. But I do know your word. Your word tells us that the death of your saints is precious to you. So Lord, I pray that he would set his mind on the things of 
of your word. I pray that you'd surround him with men and women who will give the word to him, remind him of what lies ahead if he is in fact in the faith. Lord, we pray for Amanda. Thankful that she's had her surgery. We pray for recovery, for healing, for recuperation, that she might return to work and return to health. Lord, we pray for those who are sick and suffering, that they might not lose heart. They might remember words of 2 Corinthians 4, that we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel in fragile jars of clay to show that power is yours and not ours. Because we look not to the things that we see, but to the things that we do not see. Because the things that we see, your word tells us, are already decaying. But the things that we don't see, the place where you dwell, those are eternal things. Those things cannot decay. So Lord, teach us to be a Colossians 3 people, to set our minds on Christ, set our mind on heaven. It helps us make sense of the earthly struggles we endure and the issues of health and suffering, the financial struggles, the stresses of living. Help us to remember that these present struggles, these present anxieties are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. That right now we see through a glass darkly, but there's coming a day when we will see you face to face. Lord, help us to take hold of 1 John 2.28, that we are your children now. Lord, as we turn to your word, we pray that you'd open it to us, teach it to our hearts and our minds. I pray that you would take us into it and cause us to experience your word, not just to hear it, but to experience it by the power of the Spirit. Lord, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Uh, Matthew 5, if you got your Bible, pick up in our study through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. And we will move on from the Beatitudes. If you will recall, when we started this, we talked about how Jesus in chapter 5 is essentially giving us uh, an overview of the character of the Christian. Who is the Christian? And it's necessary for us to understand who the Christian is before we start talking about what the Christian does. And we're going to talk a little bit about, in broad categories, what the Christian does tonight, but not before we talked about who the Christian is, the kind of person the Christian is, and really the kind of person that the gospel makes the Christian to be. And so in the Beatitudes, Jesus presents us with what we call the essential Christian character. And with the last Beatitude, he talks about focusing on the world's response to the Christian. So if we begin to live out these things that Jesus is talking about, if we are emptied of ourselves, if we're filled with all the righteousness of Christ, if we are merciful people and meek people, if we are making peace in the world by proclaiming the gospel in every situation, the world is going to respond to us in a certain way. 
There will be some, Jesus has promised, that will respond in faith. There will be some that will respond and will accept the gospel and will be saved. But there will be others, and perhaps more often, those who reject, those who bring persecution, those who, uh, words escaping me, but those who reject the gospel. So in our present text, which is verses 13 through 16, Jesus turns his attention to how the Christian is to respond to the world. So we looked at how the world will respond to the Christian, and now we're going to look at how the Christian is to respond to the world and how the Christian is to live within the world. So there was a... uh, a, Anybody remember the name Chuck Colson as associated with Watergate? So I don't know if you know anything about Chuck Colson. He got saved in prison and became a real force for the Christian faith, and he wrote a book called How Then Should We Live, or How Now Should We Live. I can't remember which one it was, but he's asking the question, how does the gospel apply to our lives in this day and age, or how do I live out the gospel? Which is really a question of Christian ethics or Christian morality. How should I live, or what's the right way to live, and what's the wrong way to live? So Jesus, in this text, is giving us behavior instructions. How are we to think about the world? How are we to live in the world? And so it's, it's important to note that just as in the beginning in Genesis 1 where God creates everything out of nothing, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is essentially saying that God creates a Christian out of nothing. We don't bring to God some raw materials that he says, yeah, I can work with that and get that into a Christian. He takes what is dead, Ephesians 2, right? I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but God made me alive. So he has created life within us. He has created life, and he has made us into something specific. He's made the Christian, he's commissioned the Christian with specific words, works. One pastor notes, two, the two emblems of salt and light describe the influence of the kingdom of God upon the world. When Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, he's describing the influence of the kingdom of God in the world and the response of Christ's followers to those who persecute them. So as we seek to bring the gospel to bear in the world, people are going to respond. And Jesus is saying, here's how you deal with that. Here's how you respond to that. Here's how you think about that. So look in your Bibles at Matthew 5, verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the citizens of the kingdom of God, that's Christians, every Christian is a citizen of the kingdom of God, no matter how despised they are or how insignificant they may seem to be, what Jesus is saying is that Christians alone are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So Jesus is speaking in a context when the Pharisees were the ones who guarded 
the truths of God. If you wanted to know who God was, or you wanted to know how to be right with God, or you wanted to know anything about salvation, you came to the Pharisees, and Jesus is saying, no, it's those who follow me. They're the only ones who are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And so let's talk about what those mean. We'll start first with salt, which I'm calling the Christian response to the rot of sin. The Christian response to the rot of sin. So perhaps you know salt has many characteristics. I mainly use it for flavor. Maybe that's how you use it. But it's been used for many things, but primarily for its preservative power. And this is probably what Jesus most likely is what Jesus is talking about. It fits most with what Jesus is saying to understand. He's talking about its power to preserve or to fight against decay. So uh, what's a preservative? Preservative, this is what Webster's defines preservative as. Something that preserves. I was really disappointed when I, when I read that. I like, man, I could have come up with that on myself, on my own. But specifically, it's an additive used to protect against decay, discoloration, or spoilage. So perhaps you've had some good salted meat, right? Country ham, something like that. The salt is added to preserve it from its natural process of rotting, right? As soon as life leaves a body, the body begins to decay. And when we harvest meat, in order to keep it for a long period of time, we preserve it with salt because salt is an additive that protects against the decay, which is natural. And so the Lord then describes the Christian's obligation to the world first in a negative sense. He's describing first our obligation to the world in a negative sense. We are to act as a preservative against decay. Think about that. Think about what that means. You got, the, you got a picture of a piece of meat in your mind that's rotting. Okay? And if you didn't, you do now. And your job is to keep that piece of meat from rotting, from going through its natural process of decay. And the salt which you have to do that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the Lord uses the image of salt to emphasize that Christians, by their essential character, as described in the Beatitudes, so Christians, by what the gospel is doing in them are to combat the moral and spiritual decay in this present world. So think about what are some of the, uh, what are some examples of moral and spiritual decay in our world? And we'll just limit it because we can name a lot. But what are some examples? Abortion. Absolutely. Yeah. Murder. Human trafficking. <laughs> Sinful politicians. There are innumerable more ish examples of moral decay in the world. We can all make a laundry list and probably never cross each other's list. Just because there's so much evidence of the decay of sin in the world, from big things like the national stage of politics to what's going on in our very lives. The sin affects all of it. And so, 
Jesus is saying that by virtue of the gospel in us, we are to act against, we are to act as a, as a preservative against what sin's doing in the world. And so we need to ask, what does this imply for my life? What is this saying? What is Jesus saying to me specifically about this instruction? Well, Jesus teaches the rottenness of the world, its tendency towards pollution, its tendency to become foul and offensive, its tendency towards wars and strife. And to keep with Jesus' example, the world is like meat that has already begun to rot and putrefy. That's what the world is like. Now, you might be thinking, you know, the world's not that bad. You know, I've, I've had some good experiences in the world. I've seen some pretty landscapes. I've had some pretty spectacular moments in nature. There are some good people in the world. But on the whole, on the whole, Jesus is saying the world left to itself tends toward rot and decay because of sin. Now, something else in all this, Jesus is assuming that we live in the world. Now, for the next, for, for chapters 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to the same people. This is all the same episode. This is all the same morning or afternoon, however long it was. And who's he talking to? Do you remember who we said Jesus is talking to? His disciples, right? If you go back to chapter 5, verse 1, they went up on the mountain, and his disciples came to him, and he taught them. Now, Based on the context of Matthew, there are, it's more than likely a very large crowd there hearing it, but Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to those who love him and have followed him and who consider them his Lord, their Lord. And so when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he's assuming that we, his people, are in the world. That we are interacting with the rot and the decay of the world. That we are engaging with the sin in the world, not engaging in the sin in the world, but that we are engaging with the sin in the world. He's assuming that his church is present in the lives of non-Christians, that you and I, the church, the people, that we are present in the lives of non-Christians. He's assuming that we are present in the mess and the struggles of non-Christians, ready and willing to apply the help of the gospel. Now, if you're recalling some of our other studies, you should say, well, that's a peacemaker right there. If I am in the mess and the struggles of the life of a non-believer and I am applying the help of the gospel, I am doing what verse 9 says. I am making peace in the way that Jesus says. And Jesus is saying, if you're the salt of the earth, he's assuming we're in the mess of people's lives. Now, I'm going to guess because you're all human, like me, you have messy lives, right? I'm going to assume we're all not lying, and we're all... We just, life's messy. Even when things are pretty good, it's still messy. But it doesn't, it doesn't take much to look elsewhere and see someone whose life is just being wrecked by sin. You and I were talking about that this morning. Sin absolutely wrecks people's lives, and it wrecks lives sometimes for generations. And to enter into somebody's mess is hard. It costs you something. 
to be, you know, like to be a parent. It costs you something to be a parent, not just financially, emotionally. It costs you something to enter into the struggles of a family member or a friend. Jesus expects us to be in the mess and the struggles of particularly non-Christians so that we are making peace by bearing the gospel in those situations. Because Christians are to be unlike the world. We're to be in the world, but we are to be totally unlike the world. We're to be different than the rottenness of the world. One pastor said the Christian is to be a separate, unique, outstanding kind of individual. There's to be in him something which marks him out and which is to be obvious and clearly recognized. And then he says, let every man examine himself. So his point is, Christians are to look distinct and different from the world. We're to be set apart from that rottenness because God is working out the gospel in our lives. And what this pastor is saying is, if you are living like the world, then you should take note because that's not how Christians live. That's not who Christians are. And so we need to ask this question, how does the reality of God's kingdom in my life help me to understand what Jesus is saying? How does the reality of God's kingdom in my life, which I am brought into through salvation, when I am saved, I am brought into the kingdom of God, and I'm now a citizen of the kingdom of God, how does that fact bear down on me as a Christian in the life that I live? Well, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul tells us that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and that we should live lives worthy. He says, only let your life, your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So think about for a moment your own life, your thoughts, your intentions, your emotions, your struggles, your successes, your joys. Are all of those things worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? More than that, are you intentionally trying to make sure that you're bringing your life into line with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you thinking about the fact that we are living even now in this world inside of the kingdom of heaven? Because as we're talking about on Sunday mornings with the gospel of Mark, the kingdom of God is worked out in our lives, in our very lives. You see, it's not that I get to be me sometimes and step over and be... Christian me sometimes and then step back over and just be me sometimes. When I am saved through the gospel, I am totally made the Lord and I live my life in God's kingdom. And so here are some questions, or one more thing before I do that. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul tells us that because we are saved, or for those who are saved, we are commissioned as ambassadors for God. It says... Um, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come, and this is all from God. And then he says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal, you might know how? It's important. It's that God appeals to the world in a very particular way. It says through us. God makes his appeal to be reconciled to him through us. So the assumption is we are living a reconciled life, that the old of sin, the decay and rottenness of sin, which is so natural to me, apart from Christ, that's all gone away because of the new life of the gospel. And my life is so radically changed that I am imploring you, 
be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And so we are ambassadors for the heavenly country that we are now citizens of. So a question there you see on your notes, am I thinking of my life primarily as an ambassador for the gospel? If you're a Christian, that's your job, that's your role, that's your defining identity, ambassador for the gospel. But is that how you think of yourself? Sometimes we can get into the habit of thinking, well, I'm a dad, I'm an employee, uh, I'm this, that, and the other, and I'm a Christian. Or, you know, I'm, I'm a woman, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a, you know, insert whatever, and I'm a Christian. Instead of thinking, I, through the grace of God, am an ambassador for the kingdom of heaven, and I get to exercise that in my home as a father. I am an ambassador for the kingdom of heaven, and I get to exercise that in my workplace as a, you know, whatever it is that you do. Now, I get to do that. But so do you. None of us are professional Christians. And God has placed us specifically in a world that's falling apart in order to be ambassadors for His kingdom. And so, are we thinking about ourselves as ambassadors for the gospel in our homes? We think about it in our workplaces. Are we thinking about, I'm an ambassador for the gospel among my friends? Or I'm, I'm an ambassador for the gospel when I'm alone. I'm an ambassador for the gospel in every way, in every facet of my life. And so Jesus assumes, again, that the world's wicked, that the world's decaying. That much is clear. And he's calling the church to respond. He's calling the church to be present in the world. He's calling the church to combat the death of sin through the hope of the gospel. And the church historically has responded in various ways. You know, it's the year 2019. The church has been around for most of all of those years. Jesus was crucified and ascended into heaven somewhere around AD 33 to 35, and the church was born right there. That's a while. And the world has gotten no better, but it's also gotten no worse. Sometimes we think the world's going downhill. And we forget what happened in Genesis 6 when God destroyed the world because of sin. But Jesus expects us to be present in the world. And I said the church has responded in, in a few ways. Here's some examples of the church responding positively. If you know anything about Rome, Rome was a pretty vicious culture. And Rome was known for its abandoning of babies. Well, if you knew that, if... if uh, if a parent or a, a person had a child, if a woman had a child and didn't want the child, the child would just be thrown out, just left somewhere. And the early church in Rome was known, gained a reputation for collecting these abandoned infants and taking them in, and really is where orphanages started. The church has that history. The church is known for caring for the sick when the plagues struck Europe. The church is known for mission work around the world, even in some very, very hard places. A modern example is the church is leading the way in a lot of ways with the foster and adoption movement. But sometimes the church has responded negatively to the rot and decay and, the sin, and sin in the world. 
Anybody know what the monastic movement is? Monks. So the monks thought it would be a good idea that the, the world is so sinful, I'm just going to withdraw from the world and be holy. That way the world won't get on me kind of thing. So they went up on mountaintops and they built these walled places where you don't talk. You don't even talk to each other. And they thought, well, I'll just live holy on my own. I'll let the world be what the world's going to be. And that was a sinful response to the world. Because Jesus never says, don't get the world on you. right? Yeah. Like it's water or goo or something. Don't get it on you. He actually says, get it all over you. Right? Be in it. Be immersed in it. Don't be of the world. But the monastic movement was a wrong response to the sin of the world. In the early 20th century, in the, early, in the 1900s through the 50s or 60s, there was something called the social gospel movement, which the church said, well, God said be in the world, and so they got so much in the world that they left the gospel behind. They just said, well, we'll start helping as many as people as we can help. And the church lost its way and thought, as long as we're doing good humanitarian work, even if we're not sharing the gospel, we're doing what we're supposed to do. And so they swung too far the other way. Too far the other way. So, here's a question for us, corporately as a church, but also individually as Christians, how are we responding to the world? Have you swung to the, to the monk side? Are you hiding from the world? You don't want to get the world on you? Or have you swung over to the social gospel side? I've got to be so much in the world, even if I'm not sharing the gospel, I'm still doing the work of God. Or are we right in the middle and asking, how am I to be gospel salt in a world that's decaying in sin? So Jesus goes on to teach about ineffective salt. Ineffective salt. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled. So Jesus shows us that some salt... Is just plain ineffective. It's not useful any longer. It actually isn't salt. It just looks like salt. Here we must see that while many, some, I have a typo in my notes, sorry, that while some often claim Christ, many often participate in religious ceremonies and go through religious motions but aren't salty. In the sense that Jesus is talking, there's plenty of salty people walking around, yeah? But they're not salty in the way Jesus is talking about. They're not bearing the gospel in the way Jesus is talking about. They're not on a rescue mission to save those who are dying in sin in the way that Jesus is talking about. And so this is essentially a litmus test of Christianity. Jesus is saying, here's a way that you can figure out whether you're, you're a genuine Christian or not. Here's a way to measure your own Self is how we live in the world. Am I bearing the gospel to the world? Am I living as an ambassador for Jesus Christ in the world? Am I actively fighting against the decay of sin in the world by proclaiming and living out the gospel? Am I claiming Jesus verbally while embracing the rottenness of the world? That's a hard question. It's a judgmental question. 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 says this. 
Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Here's what John's saying. There's, there's people that will confess Jesus with their mouth and live sinful lives that contradict. That those people exist. Those people exist. And, and sometimes those people are us. Sometimes those people are us. Am I claiming Jesus verbally while embracing the rottenness of the world? So before I move on, any thoughts about Christian saltiness? <laughs> about what Jesus is saying? Well, let me ask you this. What are some implications about this either for your life personally or you think for our life as a church? We need to be intentional with the gospel. Right. So we need to we need to share the gospel on purpose. We need to set aside time for that and be intentional. But also, anytime we encounter any circumstance, which is what a million times a day. That we're thinking, all right, how, how does the gospel influence this? Do I need to proclaim the gospel verbally? Is this another Christian where we can celebrate the gospel together? Am I in a disagreement with another Christian where we ask, all right, how does the gospel help us move past this or deal with this or think about this? Maybe you're being wronged by an unbeliever and you think, all right, how does the gospel calling me to respond? Maybe so that they get saved. Anybody else? Questions or comments? Um, we'll talk about this some more with light because light's a little more visual than salt. Um, anybody ever heard the phrase, preach the gospel and if necessary use words? Anybody ever heard that? It's a bad saying, all right? <laughs> the gospel is a verbal message. <laughs> it's a message of words. Now, the point of the statement is good. We should, as you're saying, live gospel lives. But sometimes I think we can get into this faulty thinking of, if I just live like I'm a Christian, people will be compelled somehow to ask me, oh, are you a Christian? And that's probably, maybe, maybe this happened to you, probably never going to happen. Because the Bible is very clear that non-Christians are not interested in the gospel. Now, we should live our lives in such a way that they're interested in why our lives aren't as bad as theirs. Guys, I think I said a few weeks back that while my home is chaotic at times, my home is at peace. Remember that? Our lives are chaotic, but they don't have to be falling apart. They shouldn't be falling apart. There shouldn't be strife and war in our lives if we have the gospel. It's plenty chaotic, but it's at peace. In the same way... We should live our lives in the world for the sake of the world. I want people to come into my life so that they can see that I live a life at peace because of the gospel. Goes back to, I feel like, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would, yeah. Would, if you are the only Christian a person ever encounters, are you being a Christian? Would you want to say to someone what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, you imitate me as I imitate Christ, or I'm following Christ so much that I want you to just come watch me, and if you watch me, you'll learn how to follow Jesus. That's a good thing to examine ourselves by. Can I say that in good conscience to someone? That leads us to the second point. Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, but he goes on to say you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. Anyone grow up singing the song? Hide it under a bushel, no? I'm going to let it shine. Well, here, just like Jesus assumes the world is in a state of decay, he assumes the world is in a state of darkness. And there is, this is one of the very first pronouncements of the Christian gospel, which is light. When we encounter someone who's not a Christian, we are saying to them through proclaiming the gospel, light. There is light to be had. There is clarity. There is salvation. There is hope. There is order to chaos. There is healing from brokenness. Maybe you know the world's gotten very good about talking about enlightenment. Several centuries ago, we went through a period called the enlightenment. And enlightenment speaks of what man does for himself. If I'm enlightened, it's talking about I've helped myself or I've done something for my sake, myself. Self-help, the gospel of self-help. If you go to the bookstore these days, go right now because they're going to die out one day. But if you go to the remaining bookstores, you'll find a whole section entitled self-help or self-care, self-love, all this self-stuff. But enlightenment speaks of what I can do for myself. It does not speak of someone or some greater being bringing light into my life. But Scripture teaches and shows us that the world is in a state of darkness. I want to show you that from Romans chapter 1. And it gives us a roadmap of sin. It gives us a roadmap of sin in Romans chapter 1. Paul says this in Romans 1 verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So there we know what the world is doing. When the world is sinful, like Jesus says, which it is, they are suppressing the truth. So we should expect opposition when we come bearing the truth because the world is suppressing the truth. And he goes on to say, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that He made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God and give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so now Paul is laying out for us the path that sin takes, or he's describing to us the effects of sin in our lives. So he says, it starts with, we exchange worship of God for worship of the world. And when we do that, 
our minds become futile. You think about that. What's, the, what's one of the single most important things about us as humans that we think, that we engage with the world mentally, and yet sin warps that and breaks that, and t- it makes us futile, makes our thinking futile, makes our reasoning futile. And one of the, one of the ex- prime examples of that today is that men are thinking they can be women, and women thinking they can be men. That's futile thinking, because they have stopped worshiping God, and they are worshiping the creation. But it says that they became futile in their thinking, and their hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. pretty terrible but if we're not careful that's our natural response but through the gospel we're saved out of that we're set on the right path our minds are healed so that we're not thinking in futility but that's the way the world lives that they exchange what is God's for what it God made and they begin to worship what God made and that makes them dumb that's what Paul's saying makes our thinking uh, it distresses our thinking. We're not thinking straight. We're not engaging with the world in a right way. And then we become darkened in our hearts and we become idolaters, sometimes in very grotesque ways. And the world is in darkness. And yet, the world's full of greatness. We've seen some incredible mechanical innovations in the last hundred years, we have seen some incredible medical innovations. Some incredible research, incredible acts of humanity by unbelievers. And yet, if we consider what lies behind many of these great things, oftentimes we find broken, ruined lives. You know, some of those people who discover treatments to various diseases or work out the math so that the ship, rocket ship can get to the moon. Some of those people live some of the most broken lives we've ever seen. And while they've done great things in the world, their lives are being ruined and ravaged by sin. Jesus goes so far as to say the world's darkness can only be addressed by the church. He says, you are the light of the world. Talking to the disciples again. Back in Matthew 5, you're the light of the world. He doesn't say it to everybody. He says it to his church. That the church is the only one who can address the darkness of the world. Or more specifically, it's the collective activity of individual Christians revealing the light of the gospel in the world. The collective activity of Christians as we reveal the light of the gospel in the world. And so when you go to work, you are engaging in being a light in the world. When you're in your home, you are engaging in being a light for the gospel in the world. When you're at the supermarket or you're in the car or wherever you are, you're being a light, you're called to be a light for the gospel in the world. It's not that Christians know more collectively or comprehensively about everything. It's not that God is saying, you have all the knowledge in the world to make things right because we don't. 
What Jesus is saying is, we know the God of the universe, and he can make all things right. When I think about medical doctors or research professors or mechanics or plumbers or other various experts, they have all a lot more knowledge in, in all those areas than I do. But their expertise doesn't save souls. There's no such thing as a soul doctor in the world. If anybody comes close to being soul doctors, it's pastors. Right? That's, that's my job from God to work on your soul. To shepherd you. But even I am under a commission to say, I can't do it. You need to go talk to this guy up here I know. And here's how you can meet him. But our worldly expertise doesn't save souls. Jesus tells us that we are like a people. We're like a city set up on a hill. We're like a lighthouse. Shining in a dark place. That's how we are to be. It means that Christians are to stand out. That they're to be readily identifiable by their lifestyle. You see, the church is a commissioned missionary force. Now, as Southern Baptists, we're part of the Southern Baptist Convention, a collection of 45,000-odd churches. We have the International Mission Board as our commissioned missionaries. But... Under God, under His Word, the church, collectively, we are all commissioned missionaries for the sake of the gospel where we live. And that mission work is specific. Go with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus adds this statement. People don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. You know why He added that in there? The same reason Hardee's has to put on their cups, content's hot. (laughs) He added that in there because he knew we were going to struggle. He knew we were going to sometimes put that basket over the light. And what he's saying is, don't do that. There's no reason to. Not only is there no reason to do that, the world needs us not to do that. The world needs us to be a lighthouse for the sake of the gospel. So many people profess Jesus on Sunday and live in darkness the rest of the week. They put the light under a basket. And when we do that, brothers and sisters, when we claim the light and then put it under a basket, we ultimately don't have the light. Pastor said, just by being a Christian, the Christian shows a different type of life that he immediately reveals the true character and nature of the other way of living. That when we are living out the gospel in the world, we are immediately revealing why unchristian living is so bad. The more saintly the person, the more this will take place. The Christian's life provides a, provides a noticeable standard. Here's an example. This happens to me. Maybe it's happened to you. Somebody will say, you know, I'll, I'll walk into a situation and someone will say, don't act like that. This guy's a pastor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a special Christian or something. Or maybe you've got a group of friends that know you're a believer. They act different as soon as you come around. They change their vocabulary. The gospel has had that effect on them. Now, we shouldn't say, you know, yeah, Get your act together. And that's not, that's not our goal. 
Our goal is not for people to conform their behavior so that we approve of them. But our lives should display a standard of living that comes from the gospel that shows a better way. That shows a better way. We talked on this past Sunday that there was something about Jesus that made the Pharisees hate him. There's something about him. His righteousness condemned them. They saw that he was righteous, and in seeing his righteousness, they realized they were not righteous. And instead of responding rightly, they hated him for it. When Pastor notes, Jesus' purity made them, that's the Pharisees, see themselves as they really were. They saw Jesus and saw how righteous he was, and they began to see how really unrighteous they were, and they hated him for it, and thus they persecuted him for it, and finally crucified him for it, just because he was the light of the world. And we must understand that the proclamation of the light will not always bring joy. It will not always bring happiness. It will not always bring salvation. Often when we proclaim the light of the world, it will bring persecution, as Jesus said. It will bring the hatred of the world. And as I said last week, I think it was last week, unfortunately, a lot of this comes from within the established church. Why is it that the peacemakers are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Let's go a bit deeper as we're bringing this to a close. You see, not only does the light of the gospel reveal the darkness and reveal the evil deeds done in darkness, the light of the gospel explains why, in fact, those things are darkness. The gospel doesn't just reveal the darkness, it explains the darkness. Every difficulty in the world today, small to great. Every wrong thing in the world today, every evil thing in the world today can be traced back to sin. Can be traced back to a rejection of God. Can be traced back to an issue of idolatry. That somewhere along the way, we have exchanged worship of God, which is right, for worship of the world, which is wrong. And when we did that, when we do that, we become futile in our thinking and we become evil. And the gospel not only reveals that, it explains that. It's one thing to tell someone you're doing something wrong. It's another thing to tell them, here's why that's wrong. So we're living in, a, we're living in the midst of men and women who are in the state of gross darkness because of sin. We need to understand that. When we gather in here, we gather to hear the word, to pray, to proclaim God's greatness, to encourage one another. But then we disperse back into the darkness as lights for the gospel. We live in the midst of men and women who are trapped in the darkness of sin. They will never have any light anywhere in the world except you and I as we proclaim the gospel. The world will never have the light of the gospel except for you and I. So we should be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should be making him known, not just in what we say, primarily in what we say, but just as importantly in how we live. 
The way in which we conduct our lives should proclaim the gospel that we proclaim with our mouth. The way that we conduct our homes, the way that we conduct our hobbies and the things we engage in, the way we engage with one another, the way we talk, the way we think, the way we act, the way we plan for the future. That should all proclaim that we believe we are citizens of heaven, that we are commissioned as ambassadors for the gospel in the world, both to fight against the decay of sin, but also to be a lighthouse for the sick and lost and the dying. And so you see all there on your notes, I just wrote, may we be found faithful. May we be found faithful. Thoughts or questions about anything we've covered tonight before we close? So let me make a few comments uh, about teaching and preaching in general. Uh, it's not enough to hear things. It's not enough just to hear me or somebody say, this is what the Bible says. Jesus calls us to action. Jesus calls us to live our lives in a certain way. Jesus calls us to act on these things. Because of what God has done through Jesus Christ for us, he calls us to act on these things. And so some very practical applications of this is that Jesus expects each of you and, and me to be lights in the world for the gospel. He expects us to enter into the messiness of other people's brokenness and apply the gospel to be peacemakers. He expects us, brothers and sisters, to hold each other accountable in this. He expects us to be together regularly praying about the lost in the world. He expects that we're going to face persecution. We're going to face pushback and rejection. That we're going to experience the world's hatred. See, all of this assumes that we are disciples. Disciple means learner. We are learning Jesus both in our minds, but also in our living. That's why Jesus didn't tell the disciples, come and listen to me. He says, come and follow me. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 3, guard one another's hearts, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away. Do you know what that means? That means we have to know each other. That means we've got to be in each other's lives. That means we've got to be talking about what we're struggling with. That means we've got to be confessing the sin in our hearts. That means we have to be in each other's messiness. That means we have to have genuine gospel community together. That means we have to be working these things out on a regular basis. That we're talking about the Word together. That we're treasuring the Word together. It's like Jesus is calling us to a lifestyle. Which He is. A radically different view of the world is what the gospel calls us to. All right, well, I hope that you will ponder and think on these things, that you will work these things out in your hearts and minds, that you'll work it out in your lives together. I hope you'll talk about these things together. Not talk about, can you believe what Ben said? But, <laughs> but talk about... Hey, how are you being a light in the go- uh, for the gospel today? You know, 
how are you fighting against sin today, both in your own life, but also how are you fighting against sin in your neighbor's life? You see, when we care about each other, we'll see, oh, there's sin in your life, not in a judgmental way, but in a caring way. I don't want you to struggle with sin. So I'm going to care enough about you to say, hey, I've noticed this in your life. Let's deal with this together. And to be humble enough to say, yeah, you're right. I do need help with that. So, let's pray. Let's pray, and I'm going to pray to that end, that Jesus would convict us to act on these things. One of those dangerous prayers. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we are still talking about and being astounded by a sermon that you preached 2,000 years ago on a hillside. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring men to remember with detail to write it down so that the church can read it and learn from it and shape our lives by it throughout our history. Lord, it's as powerful today as it was when you said it all those years ago. Lord, I pray that we would, in fact, be salt in the earth, that we would act as a preservative against the rot and decay of sin, that we would see ourselves as ambassadors for the salvation found in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would be lights in the world, like a lighthouse shining in the midst of a stormy sea, calling out that there is hope to be found. I pray that we would be intentional about living for the gospel, intentional about proclaiming the gospel, that you would make us a people serious, serious about that, and that we would do it together. We would bind up one another, that we would care for one another, that we'd motivate one another, that we would guard one another against the sin that we seek to fight in the world. Pray that we'd be a people distinct because of the gospel. Lord, commission us as we go. Keep these things on the forefront of our hearts and our minds. Remind us that we are missionaries in the world, ambassadors for the kingdom of God, and we pray, Lord, in your holy name. Amen. Have a wonderful night and the rest of the week. See you Sunday.